Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 58 of Life and Lessons. Today, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Tom Harwood. Tom is the senior reporter at Guido Forks, and if you follow political news or you've ever seen tweets of a breaking news story unfolding in Westminster, it's likely that you've seen Tom's face. In the next hour, you're going to learn about what really happens behind the scenes in British politics, why the pub is often the best place to be when working in political journalism, how it feels to break a bad news story about somebody you know well, and the feelings involved just before you hit publish, what it's like to receive thousands of Twitter mentions every single day, and so much more. I'm fairly detached from politics. For me, it's a process that occurs every few years when I step into a polling booth, and sometimes it's a sideshow to my life when I happen to watch the news. But this episode was really interesting, to hear about politics from the inside out, from somebody whose job it is to be on top of the biggest stories, both in and out of Parliament. I'm sure you're going to find this one interesting, but just before we get into it, there are two things I need to say. Firstly, I need to apologise because the audio on my microphone isn't great for this one. Uh, I'm not sure why, but there are moments where it's quite patchy and it's quite quiet, but Tom's microphone is completely fine, so it shouldn't distract from what he has to say. And secondly, if you're new here, make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. There are so many more conversations just like this one coming your way this year, and I can't wait for you to hear them. But in the meantime, here it is, episode number 58 of Life and Lessons with Tom Harwood. So look, I think that we've probably known each other or known of each other, if that's the right phrase, for a few years through Twitter. And the the, the first time I saw you kind of spring to prominence was during the Vote Leave campaign, where, correct me if I'm wrong, you were the head of the student arm, is that right? That's right, yeah. So that's quite a political position to be in as a 18, 19-year-old. But I think it's fair to say that nobody arrives in a position like that by accident. So... Just before we begin, bring me up to speed with the the 18 or 19 year blind spot that I have. What led you to be in that position? It's hard to know whether to start sort of from that position and backwards or or from my birth and forwards. Um, But I suppose it's probably more chronologically sensible to start earlier rather than later. And actually, before I was interested in anything to do with politics or or practically interested doing anything in politics, I did a lot of um, theatre and drama and performance and um actually to be honest that's been a very useful hinterland when it comes to um the performance that is politics but no i suppose i got really um much more interested in politics and sort of switched on to it in 2012 um more than anything and that was around the u.s election or actually maybe it was 2011 because it was the primaries for the u.s election and seeing, uh, it, it's it's very cringe looking back, but Ron Paul and um, and then Gary Johnson and the sort of view that there was an alternative to these two status quo monoliths that everyone seemed to hate for a variety of reasons. Um, and then through that, learning about political philosophy, um, spending countless hours um, reading up on and in actually watching 
uh, the amazing array of documentaries that used to be on YouTube, particularly about the UK in the 1980s. Um, and then in 2013, um, Baroness Thatcher died in April. And that was the moment that sort of, um, I think, connected me with a lot more people. I think I joined some Facebook groups and stuff. There was a there was a campaign to get um, a song called I'm in Love with Margaret Thatcher to number one in the charts. I think it got to about number 30. But so suddenly I was connected on Facebook with all these raging Thatcherites. Um, and I almost skipped. This was, I was doing my um, GCSEs at the time and I almost skipped out on my final ever biology lesson um, to go down to London to, to watch the funeral, but um, I didn't. So I just watched it on my iPod Touch at the back of the class. Um, I sort of regret not going down there um, ever since. But no, then I got a bit in, a, a bit more involved. I don't know, during um, sixth form, I went off to one conference, actually. It, was the, it wasn't a conference, it was a lecture. It was the Institute of Economic Affairs Annual Hayek Lecture. Um, and I'd read a bit of Hayek by this point and I was interested in it and sort of I went down with a couple of friends who were studying economics from school and we uh, sat and we watched the lecture. That was great fun. But afterwards there was a drinks reception and my friends from school were very keen to get back up to Cambridge, which is where I'm from. Um, but I was like, no, let's go for the drinks. Um, so at that drinks reception, we actually um, got chatting to a few people. I think we must have been 17 at the time. And um, I spoke to the outreach officer at the IEA, who then offered me an internship that summer. And so through that internship, a couple of months later, um, I got to know Westminster for the first time. I went into the House of Commons for the first time. Um, I illegally drank alcohol in the House of Commons bar for the first time. <laughs> um, and basically after that, it snowballed. I went to um, some more political conferences. I was fortunate that a few of them were held in Cambridge. There were um, there were some sort of pan-European conferences that the European Young Conservatives did. There was something called the Young Britons Foundation. Um, then beyond that... Um, when we're, well, we're now into 2015 and the Conservatives win a surprise uh, election victory, a majority. Um, and I'd campaigned a bit for that um, and been a, a little bit involved by that point. But one of the big things then is that one of the main manifesto pledges to deliver a referendum on the membership of the European Union could be fulfilled and would be fulfilled. And so the campaigns got going and actually... Um, I saw that there was a there was a campaign called Conservatives for Britain starting, um, and I saw it, it it was launched in one of the papers, but it didn't have any social media. It didn't have a Twitter account, didn't have a Facebook. So I just took it upon myself to make the Twitter and the Facebook. Started following a whole bunch of people, collected a whole bunch of followers, was putting out content. At, at which point, I I got a, a DM from someone saying, "Sorry, sorry, who's running this?" <laughs> um, uh, and so that day ended with a phone call from Steve Baker, uh, where it was me. I think I'm 18 at this point, um, sort of handing over the passwords to him, but also um, the comms company that was sort of helping them run it, offering me an internship that summer. Oh, well. off the back of that. So then I was back in London, doing that internship, and and also. Um, Oh, in the middle of that internship, there was a uh, there was a, a conference held held by the Adam Smith Institute and the Institute of Economic Affairs called Freedom Week. It's great; it happens every year. If anyone is even interested in classical liberal 
economics do apply for it because it's a free week where they put you up in a, a university about 20 to 30 people and you have lectures and um, talks and great social events anyway it turns out the keynote speaker that year was steve baker and he remembered phoning me and i remember talking to him um, and we had a chat and he and i was like i'd like to get more involved and um so i went back down to london after that had some meetings and ended up running the national student wing of the vote leave campaign so sorry for the long rambling answer, but that's sort of the political hinterland as best as I can remember it. The whistle stop tour. Um, so going back to the very beginning, we all grow up in a, a certain environment that kind of informs our very initial view of the world. Be that uh, I'm Labour, I'm Conservative, I believe X, Y or Z. We, we typically borrow it from, say, our parents, our teachers, whatever it might be. Do you remember where your first political views came from? And then on top of that, are you at odds with any of those things that you once believed now that you've kind of formed your own adult opinions? That's a really interesting question. I can't remember my first political memory. I can remember being, I think I must have been in year six, and and um, being told that um, Boris Johnson had won the London mayoralty. Um, and I remember that being um, something that we talked about in the playground. Um, but... Oh, and I remember, I think, my teachers telling me in the 2005 election there could be a new prime minister tomorrow or something along that line. Um, but no, I don't, I don't really have any really strong young political memories, I think. I was a big supporter of Barack Obama in 2008, just because everyone was. Like, you couldn't not be. Um, I, I was um, Facebooking fanatically about it, which to some extent I think I regret. Um, not so much that I, I don't think that I would have marginally thought that he, he was a, a reasonable choice for America back then, but just because I think um, the cringeworthy partisanship to which I, I um, uh, took to politics back in 2008 was, was just deeply embarrassing. I um, just, you as you were telling that story, I think my first real, I wouldn't say political memory, but the, the first time I remember expressing a political view, it came back and backfired immediately. I must have been in year maybe year seven, maybe year eight. And I remember saying to my tutor that Phil Hope, the Labour MP for Corby at the time, I said, ah, oh, he'll, he'll never be voted out tomorrow. He's definitely going to remain. And then Louise Bagshaw, now Louise Mensch, was voted in. And I just remember being, I wouldn't say lambasted, but you know what I mean? That was that, that kind of marked me because it was my first view into actually that politics is this thing that divides people, right? It brings mm. people together in some cases, but it had just been this thing on the TV until that point where I, expressed my opinion for the first time and it came back and had I wouldn't say consequences but somebody else's view was thrown back at me yeah and that's kind of what I want to ask you about as we get started on this this conversation because I did some very in-depth research about four minutes ago and I searched your name on Twitter oh uh, don't do that <laughs> <laughs> and there were hundreds and hundreds of replies in just the last 24 hours. There were something like 24 instances of the word fuck sent to you. A couple of people called you a prick. Your Twitter, for some reason, seems to be very inflammatory. Let's start here. Do, do you understand why? I absolutely don't. It's actually, it's actually a bit odd since I got bigger on Twitter. There is, I've been on Twitter for a long time, you know, I mean... The silly jokes and sort of sarcasm that you'd used to put into tweets and stuff, you just can't really do those kind of jokes when you when there are when most people following you will not have any idea what you're tweeting about. Um, so it's a bit constraining to have like suddenly had a, a bit of a larger 
following. But also it's odd because some people, well, most people who follow you don't know you. That's the biggest thing. Most people who um, sort of have even heard of your name have some sort of weird caricature view of you um, that they have constructed off the back of one word association or heuristic or whatever. And then they just read everything that you write through that. Even if it's reporting news, I mean, I, I reported news, we're, we're recording this today on a day when we're expecting London to be put into tier four. We haven't yet had any announcement about this. Um, but I was tweeting some sort of roundup of rumours about what this would mean, how many people would go into it. And people reply to the tweet as if that's sort of your doing, as if that's your opinion or, or like you're, you're cheering this or decrying it. And it's so funny if you tweet a neutral statement, people just see it through their own filter and will find a reason to be angry about it. Do you ever find that, let's say a neutral tweet, like you say, do you ever find that a neutral tweet can, for want of a better phrase, piss off people on both sides of the divide because they're reading it through that particular paradigm of theirs? Have you ever tweeted something that seemingly shouldn't cause offence but has caused offence to both hardline left and right users oh i i very often cause offence to both hardline left and right users i am invariably both a fascist and a cuck um there is literally nothing that i can read i don't know it's um it's funny if you tweet a joke during a pandemic suddenly you're an uncaring um person or if if you say that um, masks are probably a good thing to wear, then then suddenly you're a fascist authoritarian. You know, it's it, you, there is no way that you can just go through life living on Twitter. I mean, as I used to do in sort of 2011, 2012, I remember actually, here's a bit of a side note. When I got the job um, that I have now at Guido Fawkes, um, I remember um, it being announced in Press Gazette and then suddenly a whole bunch of sort of very our left Twitter Twitter users sort of going through, let's search through all his young tweets. His tweets go back to, what, 2009. Let's see what horrible things he was saying. And then I, I, I followed this conversation thread between two or three of people trying to find um, like really horrible stuff that I might have tweeted in the past and then being so disappointed that I was such a boring nerd that was <laughs> barely political until 2012-13 and was just tweeting about, like, I don't know, TV shows and stuff. Um, the, the disappointment was palpable. Do you think that the outrage that people show towards characters like you on Twitter is real? And I want to, side note, but tell a short story that makes me believe perhaps it isn't. So there is, I won't name him, but there's a very successful young media figure here in the UK. And a few months ago, he tweeted some sort of meme, which could have been construed as kind of uh, adding humour to domestic violence. And he deleted it immediately, apologised for any offence caused. The tweet was maybe up for one minute, two minutes. And I was in the office, I kind of closed Twitter, thought nothing of it, came back on an hour later, and his name was number three trending in the UK. And I was reading genuinely thousands of what what could be seen as responses to this tweet, but I know for sure that that many people did not see the tweet in the time. Being offended by something that A, they didn't see, and B, dare I say, if one of their friends had put into a WhatsApp group chat, they probably would have laughed at. Do you think that as soon as you have some sort of following or some sort of name to yourself you're held to a different standard. Yeah, but more than that, people have an idea of what they are being outraged by. I remember back in, when was it? When were the Black Lives Matter protests? That was just before the summer. Um, and I, I went on Good Morning Britain in the morning 
Um, and we were talking about sort of statues and, and why it's right to pull some down or why not others. And anyway, the view that I expressed on the show was exactly the same as the party political position that Sir Keir Starmer had come out with that morning as well. Um, and I think it was a very middle of the road, very reasonable, very understanding sort of position. And actually, by the end, we had sort of me and Piers Morgan saying, you know, actually, I think there's there's a reasonable ground here. And it, it seemed like a very nice, reasonable conversation, unlike a lot of conversations on that TV show. Um, and yet, after that, where I thought, great, that was a, a great job. Well done. That's I'm, I'm quite happy with that performance. I think we got quite far through and it and the person I was up against ended up saying that statues of Churchill should have been torn down wasn't he ridiculous yes okay great but the thing is most people don't watch the exchange they just see that oh Tom Harwood's on tv this morning talking about statues I know what he was saying and then go off on on something that they haven't listened to or understood and it's always when you have those sort of snowballing um, when, whenever your name trends on Twitter, and it's, it's happened a few times, um, usually after some TV appearance or other, um, and invariably you know that 97% of people doing the tweeting have not seen the thing they're tweeting about. And that snowball effect takes it, it's like Chinese whispers, it just gets away from any semblance of reality, and the anger uh, increases. Do you read the, uh, the responses to your tweets? And also on top of that, even though you you clearly have a very level-headed view of these, you know, icons on Twitter shouting things at me don't really matter. Has it ever got to you? Have you ever thought, like, this is a a big tsunami wave of tweets today? Um, Sometimes, genuinely. uh, There's... It, it depends. Like when 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 you're when you are like literally in a top UK trend, you cannot read every single tweet about you. You just can't. Even if you're you have a morbid fascination with it, you cannot like go through the whole um, litany of of hate. Um, but also when when you do, you, you you can't sort of just turn off Twitter and put it down. Like there is this sort of fascination, this cool of the void, well, that you have to look at look at some of this stuff. Um, but no, I mean, generally, I'm uh, fairly liberal with the mute button. I quite like the idea that people can just continue to like reply to me, but that um, they're sort of shouting into the void, and that's kind of fun. Um, I know that there are several people who... It goes in cycles, actually. Like You do sort of see the same um, icons underneath your tweets for like several months. Like there'll be one or two people who decide to reply to every single tweet that you do and then they'll get bored and they'll, there'll be another couple of people who do it and, and it all goes through cycles. I think there's, there's, um, there's a few people who take to quote tweeting every single tweet of mine, I think at the moment, but, um, like, yeah, ultimately you are, you are in the wrong headspace if you are thinking that everything that happens on Twitter is the most important thing in the world. Has anybody ever changed your opinion or your view on something based on one of their tweets? Because we can assume if we if we suggest that they're doing it for the right reasons, we can assume that people respond to your tweets because they have a an opposing view to yours and they want to win you over. Has that ever happened? I don't think... I think that, yes, my view has been changed on some things, but that's been more by people who I follow and respect than people who are just in the void of the comments. Like, I I think there's a difference between having a genuine conversation with people versus having a a shouty back and forth. Cool. Okay, so you are the senior reporter at Guido Forks. 
for those who don't know, just in your own words, tell me what Guido is. We are, I suppose, a gossip blog for Westminster. Uh, we do very fast-paced news and sort of, um, I don't know, the the stories that people want to know about what's going on behind the shiny facade of politics. And the name of the blog is, of course, named after, well, it's the Spanish uh, name of Guy Fawkes. So um, Guido Fawkes, we say, was the only man to ever walk into the House of Commons with honest intentions, which, of course, was to blow it all up. And so so this, um, this site really came to prominence in around 2008, 2009, at the height of the expenses scandal. Um, and ever since then, we have been pretty ruthless when it comes to exposing MPs' hypocrisy, um, but also uh, increasingly sort of establishment media hypocrisy as well. So Guido Fawkes, to me, I know I just said this off uh, off microphone, but the, the only comparison I can draw is that it's very similar to TMZ, which I'm sure people listening will know, in as much as uh, there are two things that are quite stand out about TMZ. The first is their speed of reporting. Like, they report on things almost before they happen. It's immediate. And the second is that, generally speaking, if it's published on TMZ, it turns out to be true. So it isn't a a rag whereby they will publish anything for speed and then later have to retract things. Both of those things seem to be true with Guido Fawkes. Um, and so, as I follow you... And Laura Koonsberg, if it's not Laura tweeting something, uh, as it happens, it's you. And a good example of that is what we just spoke about, right? The tier four here in London today. I think that you uh, pipped Laura to the post by about a minute today by breaking that news on my timeline. Talk me through the world of how political news breaks. So before somebody like me or anybody listening knows about that news, people like you know about it. How does that happen? There are so many different ways it happens. Um, you have a sprawling network of people who you trust in politics, who are in positions um, that are influential, who have been correct before, and you weight what they say very highly. Um, Guido has an enormous user base within Parliament. I think I think it, the last time we checked, it was the most visited sort of non-official website within the House of Commons. Um, and so our tip-off box where people anonymously sort of say stuff about um, what goes on in politics is always overflowing. And so then the job of us is to sort of try and verify what we hear through that. Um, and then there, there is the other infallible thing, which sadly has, has um, waned in recent months for obvious reasons, which is what we hear at the pub. And the extent to which British politics is just alcohol fueled and um, and driven through just conversation is is not to be underestimated because you could just be meeting someone up um, for a drink um, and not really knowing what what you're going to be chatting about and suddenly you're, you're walking away at the end of the evening with a few things that you hadn't even considered um, to follow up in the morning so let's let's find an example in that which has been substantiated um, has there ever been anything that's popped into that inbox or that you've heard in a conversation at the pub that later turned out to be something you reported on accurately, but at the time you thought, fucking hell, surely not? So I think it's probably best if I don't reveal where we heard certain stories, uh, because one of the biggest things in the job is not revealing sources. 
and you need to have that level of trust within the people who um, might want to talk to you about stuff in order to um, continue having them coming back. So there have been any number of different um, things that have that have dropped into our laps. I mean, one of the biggest things in the last uh, week or two was, of course, the Sky News, Kay Burley, uh, Beth Rigby story, um, which we which I heard on the on the Sunday and spent basically most of the Monday trying to stack up and verify because it did seem too good to be true at the time. And how do you, again, without revealing any details, which might uh, lead to somebody who was a source on a story such as that, what is your process? How does it work? Basically, you take the detail in the story and you think, right, what is the best way to get a secondary source on this? So in the example of the um, Sky News um, tier three tier two breaking story um was the weak link in the chain there were a whole bunch of journalists who met up but then as the story that i was told they went to a second restaurant so the first thing that i did was phone up that second restaurant um and um the first couple of times didn't get through but you just keep trying and eventually i got through to the owner of the restaurant who was the person who'd opened uh, it up after curfew for the journalists. The reason we didn't phone up the journalists is they're pros. They're very good at what they do. They would know how to shut down a story. They'd know that you're fishing for information and that um, anything they say would verify a story potentially. So instead, going to the sort of non-journalistic figures, um, probing with questions that make it seem like you know more than you actually do, um, you you get a a shape of what happened and 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 the the fortunate thing about that story or perhaps the unfortunate thing for the sky presenters was that the story that i heard from the guy that owned the second restaurant was a different story than what um some of those uh, journalists at sky news said and so the two didn't corroborate and so someone was clearly not telling the truth do you ever feel like you're not in a literal sense breaking the rules, but if I had to go and do that kind of investigation to find out something that could then, uh, you know, be published and have impacts on people's lives, people's livelihoods, whatever it might be. Whilst I understand there's there's an element of journalistic integrity there, which completely makes sense in the process of, of uncovering these stories. Do you ever think, oh, shit, my, my palms are a bit sweaty before I hit publish on this one? I mean, it's horrible, yeah. The moment before you go to... I mean, particularly because, like, I, I quite like Kay Burley. Like, I didn't... I mean, The thing is, if we didn't run that story, someone else would have done. We knew that it was circling around at Sky by the point... By, uh, by Monday afternoon, we knew that Sky bosses had been told about it. It was inevitably going to come out in the next... And actually, as it happens, I think The Guardian had been writing something up on a different... Not on what happened, but of the fact that Sky employees were going to be investigated over something. Um, so different people had different elements of the story. So ultimately, you've got to be able to sit down with yourself and say, look, if you don't do this, someone else will. And and it is, it is tricky because, of course, uh, before we ran it, I had to phone Kay up myself. And we were texting as she was driving up to Coventry for the morning of the first vaccinations being um, delivered. And 
we were sort of having this back and forth. Do you want to comment? She was saying, um, give me a, give me a bit, give me a bit, give me a bit. And it's like, look, we've, we've got to go to, or as we say, go to pixel. Um, at some point, um, I'll take it that you don't want to comment. And then she was like, don't assume that. And it's like, obviously this is obfuscation tactics. Fair enough. Um, but, but we went out and as soon as we went to, as soon as we published the story, um, there was a, a an explanatory Twitter thread from her, but unfortunately, we'd held a bit back from the other story that didn't corroborate with that, and it, and it in the end ended up digging a bit of a deeper hole. And without going into details of that private conversation with Kay, how did you feel at the time? Because you know, to me, Kay Burley's a person on TV, but clearly you have some sort of conversational relationship with her. Um, and like you say, you quite like her. Do, yeah. Is there a, I don't want to say an emotional element, but the next best thing to emotional element when you're having to explain that, you know, this this story exists and it's going to be published, but I need to chat to you first. How do you feel when you're sending those texts? It is, is it's, it just twists your insights, doesn't it? You feel like, I mean, I, I like Kay. I've been on her show loads. We've had great conversations. I think there are, there are some people who are um, wrought with bias at Sky News and are, are, are not particularly, um, I don't know, conducive to a good political conversation. I don't count Kay in that bracket. I think she's actually one of the, one of the fine ones. But um, yeah, you do, you do sort of think this is going to have an impact. Um, and and you would be inhuman if you didn't feel a bit bad about that. And so not this particular story, just to be clear, I'm that this question isn't about Kay Burley, but have you ever broke a story about an individual and then not in the public realm of Twitter, like we've already spoken about, but privately on WhatsApp, in DMs, has anybody ever personally responded to that story in, say, an agitated and angry way? And again, similar question to before, but how does that feel if somebody's coming at you directly? Yeah, I mean, that's happened, but not in an angry way, more in a sort of sad way. And I'm in the tricky position whereby, actually, the, the last time that happened, it wasn't it wasn't my story. Um, and I'm senior reporter for Guido, I'm not editor. I don't make the editorial calls as to what goes up, what goes down on the site. That's my boss. And it sounds so much like a cop out so often where it's like saying, look, I, I literally, I, even if I were to agree with someone on something, it's not within my control. I can, I can make representations to my boss, but ultimately I'm not the guy who runs Guido. I don't get to, um, take stories down without, uh, higher approval. And that's sometimes, um, a bit tough to sort of accept your place in the pecking order. Have you ever published a story that you personally regret publishing or perhaps on the contrary, have you ever not published something and then 10 minutes later it's picked up by somebody else and you, you drop the ball? Oh yeah. I'm um, just, just recently with the, um, with the new chief of staff in number 10, um, we had the story that it was going to be um, announced imminently um, was our source. And we were just going around making, making the final checks before we hit publish, I think we'd written most of it. And then number 10 goes and announces it. And it's like, oh, if we didn't chase after that, if we were a little bit more slapdash, we would have absolutely had that. But sometimes you do have to miss out on those things to make sure that you don't have the embarrassment of saying something that isn't factually correct. Yeah. So let's talk about 
Dominic Cummings. I know very little about Dominic Cummings. Um, again, as a, a lay person who just uses Twitter and I see his name pop up, he's presented as kind of a puppet master when he was in number 10. How much truth is behind stories like that? The most ridiculous thing about the Dominic Cummings saga is the projections that people put onto him in terms of what policy positions he favours within number 10. And particularly because all of the Dominic Cummings news was blowing up around the time of debate over lockdown and stuff, people who were anti-lockdown started defending Dominic Cummings ferociously, and people who were pro-lockdown started attacking him. Now, if you know anything about Dominic Cummings, these two groups are fighting the wrong battle. If there was a single voice in the early stage of the pandemic who was questioning Sage, who was advising against locking down, um, whose who's, who's minutes right through the middle of March said if you do heavy suppression at the beginning, you um, risk a bigger second wave. Cummings was basically the only person in the meetings arguing to lockdown or, or saying, why aren't we doing what's, what's going on in, in the rest of Europe? Um, and yet, because of the caricature of this thing, um, he's, he's seen as this evil mastermind behind some kind of herd immunity strategy. Now, that's just one example of, number one, the problem of having a senior advisor within number 10 who's had a Netflix documentary about them. Or, no, it's Channel 4. Um, but also the idea that any one person wield some sort of Machiavellian power over what happens in number 10. That's just, that's just not the case. You have a, a balance of power in all things. Um, and just to take the example of lockdown, if Dominic Cummings really was completely in control of everything that happened in number 10, we'd have locked down a lot earlier than we did. There is this suggestion, for want of a better word, that everything that comes out of the Prime Minister's mouth is either through, I don't know, Dominic Cummings or somebody else behind the scenes. For as much as you know, talk me through the process of what happens in the days or even hours before the Prime Minister steps out to a press conference like he's about to do this evening. The words are obviously written by somebody else who is a professional speechwriter, but who decides what goes into it? How many people are involved? So it's interesting you say that. That is a very true characterization of what happened under Theresa May. She would never write a word that she said. It would always be sort of um, ghostwritten through her by, um, particularly in the early days, um, Nick Timothy. And this is one of the problems when the result of the 2017 election came through. Um, suddenly, the advisors were gone and no one really knew who Theresa May was because she hadn't ever put her, her own personality into these speeches. They were always written by other people. Boris is very different. Boris actually does write his speeches. Um, one of the reasons why he has, I think, a, a greater level of sort of connection with a great sway of the electorate and why he is able to get a message across, even if it riles people up. I mean, the, the, the most recent one that we've heard, have yourself a merry little Christmas, and I emphasise the little, or or what was the other one? There was something about a, a jolly, um, have a jolly Christmas, but also be jolly careful. Um, all, all of these I, things. I quite like that second one, I have right. to be honest. <laughs> right, and they, but they, they come from him. They're not written by, by someone else. You can very much tell that the sort of, um, swathes of speeches that he he gives at the moment and are written in the same style as his old Telegraph columns used to be, um, and that's interesting. However, you also have the the point that this is a prime minister who is facing a crisis that is delivering a great um, 
contortion to his instincts because you can just tell if he was a telegraph columnist still or even a backbencher he would be on the um, side of the party that's saying why the hell are you doing these restrictions why can't we leave it to people's personal responsibility what on earth are these ridiculous rules particularly this this um, seemingly counterproductive curfew and all this nonsense um, and yet he also has has um, obviously been persuaded by the um, by the scientific advice within number 10 that this is stuff that he has to do and so you have this um sort of contorting balance within these speeches where he's saying stuff that he hates um and couching it in some more entertaining language sometimes um it's a it's a fascinating period um and i for one cannot wait to be done with it just as you were speaking there it struck me that your now in a position where you're able to speak so matter-of-fact about the Prime Minister, about his senior advisors and so on. And a few moments earlier, you told me the story of the first time you went into the House of Commons, uh, sorry, the House of Parliament, and you um, you were peering through the windows from the outside looking in mm. such a short, relative short period of time ago. And now you're very much in the thick of that world. Have you ever taken a moment to just pause and think, wow? I did that the first time I went into number 10. That, I think, was... You you get those moments once. The first time you go in um, the House of Commons, but not the House of Commons in terms of like a, a public tour, like the first time you go down into, there's a bar called the Sports and Strange, um, Sports and Social. It's now called the Woolsack, but everyone still calls it the Sports and Social. Um, or indeed Strangers Bar. When you go down into the into the belly of, of the Houses of Parliament, that's sort of something that's like, wow, I'm in a different world. But that's a world that several maybe 10,000 people can access. Um, then you go to something else that's, um, you know, the first time you step into the door of number 10 and they ask you to put your phone in the little cubby hole and you're taken through and you're like, holy wow, that's Pitt the Younger's writing desk and, and, and this is the stairway with all of those photos that was in Love Actually and like, wow, this is something that fewer people get to see. Um, that was another moment that was like, cool. Um, and then, and then suddenly you're you're doing that fairly regularly for various um, uh, press briefings or whatever. I went to, the, I used to go to back when back when the coronavirus press briefings were um, uh, held with a, a physical pool of journalists in the room. I used to go to those, um, and that was always fun. You sort of um, you you shuffle into Downing Street and you're taken um, through sort of the back way and up through this sort of servant staircase into the room, and you all shuffle in. Um, that way and then the prime minister comes through the grand oak doors um and that's always a moment but i sup i suppose that sort of that the sort of wow moment hits you each of those first times it happens with that view into this world that to me to the the people who don't fall inside that ten thousand or so group of people so the other 60 million people in the country what are some things about the world of british politics that would surprise us I think I mentioned earlier how much stuff runs on alcohol. Um, I worked a couple of, three summers ago, um, in Washington, D.C., um, and spent a bit of time around the Capitol and was amazed to find that there are no bars in the United States Capitol. The closest bar that everyone goes to is basically an uber ride away by union station like uh, or it's quite a quite a hefty walk away um 
like it's just a completely different, much more clinical world. Uh, and I think British politics has is is almost more camaraderie, and you can see Labour MPs and Tory MPs getting on over a pint after a day's work um, down in down in the bars in in the House of Commons, and I think that that's a positive thing. And I worry actually that there are some House authorities that are sort of using the coronavirus pandemic to try and wean back off this sort of um, chummy puppy culture that there is in the House of Commons. I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think that that's a positive thing. Um, because otherwise you, you, you go down the road to hyper-partisanship. So this is a thought that I had this earlier and I thought I don't quite know how to word the question, so I was going to leave it out. But it kind of takes us back to the conversation about Twitter, but it is the whole partisan thing, right? What are your views on those who believe that they cannot hold friendships with people who have an opposing view? Because it's interesting to hear from the story you just told that those at the very top, the policymakers, the politicians that are looked at by these members of the public can get along as friends. They can have opposing views, but get along together. It seems that, particularly in the last four or five years, kind of post-referendum, um, or even maybe before then, but really post-referendum, it seems like if you dare make a political statement online, or even in a group of friends, you can count on losing half of those friends. What do you make of this whole, this change of pace? Yeah, it's sad. And it's actually one of the things that forms my political philosophy. Politics is one of those few things in life that is zero sum. If someone wins, someone else loses. And that's not the case when it comes to trade or exchange or just, just the market and life. And like you can have winners on both sides in in most other things, apart from maybe sport. Um, but at least in sport, you know, there's always next year. Um, the the unique poison of politics is that it creates losers. And it was put to me a couple of years ago, actually, that this is not a bad argument for getting the politics out of life, for having a smaller sphere that is decided by political means and a larger sphere that is um, sort of left alone. Um, if there's if there's any um, argument for for a smaller government that that is based on basic humanity, it's that look at what politics does to us. It toxifies everything. So getting that to as small a sphere as it has to be to deliver a just society is perhaps a noble aim. That being said, there are people on in opposition parties who I get along very well with, who I have been for drinks with. There are people in the shadow cabinet who are very, very nice, and I'd, I'd say we get along well with. Um, but, but there are also people who take everything um, to a toxic extreme um i think those people are becoming fewer thanks to the result of the last election but it's still a very common thing amongst activists uh, people simply won't entertain a friendship with someone who they disagree with about one thing or another now that doesn't happen so much um when it comes to football fans why would it 
happen so much when it comes to politics. I must stress that this is an incredibly small pool of people. The vast majority of people don't give two hoots. The vast majority of people are actually really normal and nice and friendly and happy. And it's probably the the most extreme, tiny, less than 1% on each end of the spectrum that take this view. However, sadly, I think that certain parts of social media tend to amplify those tiny extremes. Have you seen um, the second podcast recording in two days? I've mentioned this documentary, The Social Dilemma on Netflix. I haven't, no. So uh, it's basically a collection of people, like the guy who invented Endless Scroll on Facebook, the man who invented the like button, all of these kind of OG people from the tech scene who talk about the things that they've built and their regrets when it comes to what it has caused. Um, And it's very interesting because it's something I knew anyway, but I still had this, this sense of panic whilst watching it because it, it demonstrates what it can create, where they use the example of the, the Facebook algorithm showing you more political news that you agree with, to the extent whereby everybody now has their own independent uh, news source, for want of a better phrase, that continuously agrees with their opinion. When we have algorithms such as that, which are reinforcing our views, plus very divisive issues such as the Brexit referendum, such as what feels like a million general elections since I turned 18, How do we resolve the wounds that have been caused by all of these arguments? Do you see the country coming back together in such a way that, truthfully, I don't quite remember it ever being like? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good point that you just put at the end. There is this um, peculiar trait of metropolitan political commentary that started in 2016 that says that in 2012, when we had the Olympics, everything was brilliant and there were no problems with the country forgetting of course that the year earlier there were riots in brixton that that there were um, tuition fee riots that literally um smashed up the conservative party headquarters that there were um that there was strife faced by the country i mean the unemployment that we had in the wake of the great recession um and and of course going back throughout every um space of five years you can find a time that you could probably claim to be um an, an incredibly divided bitter twisted country but then again you can also find moments of unity so i don't accept that there's been this sort of overarching um arc towards um division outside of a media sphere um that being said i was very hopeful in the wake of the 2019 general election that finally we've resolved some of these questions i mean one of the biggest reasons why there was an incredible level of, of of dissatisfaction and bitterness was the fact that losers' consent was never um, arrived at in the wake of the um, Brexit referendum. Actually, to, to, to be fair, that's probably not quite true. It was for the first uh, six to nine months. Um, every poll showed that people accepted this, that... I mean, the idea of a second referendum was 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 so opposed by the vast majority of people. It was sort of a, a tiny rump of of, of single digit polls um, that were suggesting that that should be a thing. But then, obviously, the political instability of a weak prime minister enabled an opportunity for some people to prey on um, slight gaps and turn them into chasms and turn it into division. And I think that there's probably blame that can be put on both sides for that 
Um, I do think that we have disrupted political norms in this country. And I think that the media has given too much respect and time to the kind of people who push the same sort of arguments that Donald Trump is pushing right now. That, oh, this was all fraud. This was fake. We have to run it again. We have to get the uh, military involved. This is an illegitimate um, President Biden. Like, all this sort of stuff. That's exactly the same stuff that fairly respected people in the media in this country were saying in the wake of Brexit. And yet, because that was a policy decision or a political decision that a few people, that, that, that people in certain positions of influence disagreed with, they were far more likely to take the baseless accusations of, of particularly of, um, I mean, the big one that Trump pushes is, is like voter fraud, right? Um, and there's a journalist called Carol Codwallader at the, at the Observer who has for three years been pushing stories about the Russians doing voter fraud in this country over Brexit. Anyway, the information commissioner um, examined this, about this, this whole Cambridge Analytica stuff. Um, and the information commissioner found that Cambridge Analytica didn't work on the Brexit campaign. Now, that was found um, at the at the start of this year. And it has got nowhere near the coverage that the original claims did. The original claims won um, a Netflix documentary, the Orwell Prize, um, all this sort of stuff. And, and the official investigation that is done by the Independent Com um, Information Commissioner, someone who this particular journalist has praised throughout her career, and, and someone who is certainly not seen to be a friend of this government, um, has found to be absolute nonsense. And, and I think that there is a problem in this country, I, I wrote about this in The Telegraph a few weeks ago, where we gave, where it, it, it's, it's almost as if we, for three years, lived in a country whereby... Donald Trump lost an election and then was given the credibility that he he sought by the mainstream media. That's the parallel I think that we can draw, and it's one that was profoundly damaging. Why do you think people want to hear things that agree with their opinion rather than fact? Uh, I, I take what you say about the the initial story uh, being debunked, for want of a better word, and that debunking, if that's even a word, not getting anywhere near as much coverage. We see this with news stories constantly, whereby outlets can push a certain headline um, and the correction of that headline, the correction of that piece doesn't get anywhere near as much traction. Why are people wanting almost to continue division, in your opinion? It's a natural human calling to want to sit amongst your in-group. Um, and it is actually really interesting how when you look at the science of prediction and you have a group of experts and a group of non-experts, actually when people are asked to make predictions that fall in line with what they believe anyway, whether they're an expert in the field or not, they're more likely to get it right if what they are predicting happens to be what they think should happen, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, and that's just innate to who we are as a people. And I think that that's something that perhaps we should work to overcome a bit more. People should be more comfortable with being uncomfortable. And the fact that we always seek the sort of um, reassuring analysis on top of thinking about things in a, in a slightly 
deeper way or being willing to challenge ourselves or break those um those those positive feedback loops that i think so many of our social media accounts have become in in recent history um i think this is actually really interesting in terms of what we look to in the future in our political society because what we'll have is a large generation of left-wing politicians who have been able to garner thousands and thousands of retweets for saying simple platitudes that in many cases most of the country disagrees with but all of twitter agrees with and they'll have sailed through that without much um opposition whereas you'll have a whole generation of conservative politicians who've had to tread so so carefully on social media um, and have faced a barrage of attack and criticism and actually in many ways will have honed their arguments more and will have become stronger through the challenge. Um, that will be a very interesting um, clash to see. I think there is some argument to say that people on the right who exist in more hostile social media environments have, through that fact, um, almost been trained to a to a better degree than people on the on the left who can who can sort of sail through without any controversy. So to pick up on the phrase sailing through, I think it's fair to say that in your political career so far, you've sailed through in as much as you've always been on the winning side of the argument. You've taken enormous amounts of criticism for that, but with the last three general elections, your party has won and in the referendum, the thing which you campaigned for one, do you think you're ready to be on the losing side of the argument in this zero-sum game? I think there's plenty of times that I've been on the losing side of the argument. One of the biggest things, I think, and one of the reasons why we've had, why we had three years of political tumult was that the wrong person became prime minister in 2016. I worked on Andrea Leadsom's leadership campaign, actually, briefly, for the week or so that it was alive. Uh, I think there is one embarrassing photo of me marching in a bright blue Leadsom for Leader t-shirt from Millbank Tower back to the Houses of Parliament. Um, that being said, I think that if Theresa May went through any semblance of normal leadership contest and was forced to debate and was forced to campaign, she would not have become Prime Minister because I think she was fundamentally ill-suited to the job. Um, so that was a loss that I think was hugely consequential. Similarly, the 2017 general election was uh, it was an appalling um, outcome. Um we didn't know exactly what would happen um, immediately following. Um, I mean, for the for the for the, it was a couple of weeks until the confidence and supply agreement was um, was reached with Democrat with the Democratic Unionist Party. Yes, I think things have turned out all right in the end, but there have been some significant worries and battles all the way through. And I, I mean, when Brexit didn't happen on the 23rd of March, uh, 2019. That was a huge moment, a significant moment where people felt it was slipping away. When Theresa May made an announcement that the European elections would be going ahead, that was a gut punch. When Theresa May said that in order to stop the European elections going ahead. I am now having talks with Jeremy Corbyn and we've effectively agreed to a customs union. That was like 
ripping the election result or the or the referendum result away from Brexiteers. One of the biggest criticisms that Westminster Brexiteers had of Theresa May was she saw the referendum as a referendum on migration and nothing else. Now that's one of my least concerns with the European Union. Like my one of, one of the, the the biggest opportunities I saw in leaving the European Union was leaving its customs union and being able to strike free trade agreements with other countries around the world. Now, if you take away what I saw as one of the biggest benefits of Brexit, all to secure what I think was one of the smallest benefits of Brexit, that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the Brexiteer mindset, is what brought Theresa May down. It was misunderstanding the idea that you could just buy off Brexiteers by saying, oh, we'll be, um, we'll be harsher when it comes to migration. That was Theresa May's entire career. But that's not what Brexit's about. Brexit was about um, a, a different regulatory structure for this UK, a different trade relationship in the world, reorientating ourselves to the growth markets of the world. Like, all of this stuff was just being utterly thrown away with promises of regulatory alignment and, and custom subservience. It's hard to express the evening that that was announced, the absolute horror. I mean, I was walking home um, from Westminster, I remember when it was, and I, I was just sort of furiously texting people in number 10, saying, like, this is how on earth are you staying there? Um, and the horror was huge. Um and it was only until, and, and, and let's not forget, Brexit was delayed, what, three, four times by Parliament? Even after Boris became Prime Minister and got a deal, there was something called Super Saturday. When we all came in on, on Saturday, we, I, I was sitting up in the press gallery as, um, as then the Letwin Amendment delayed it once again, even after a deal was agreed, because there was some sort of conspiracy theory that even though Boris got a deal, he secretly wanted no deal, and he was using a general election as a as a secret conspiracy to try and force no deal on the people. I mean, the, the 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 way that people are so willing to buy into convenient conspiracy theories, I think, is just deeply, deeply worrying, and it shows a peculiar state of our politics. That afternoon, when the whole vote was called off because of the Letwin Amendment, um, I was a couple of people behind Jacob Rees-Mogg as we were walking out of Parliament, and he walked out with his family. He lives on um, a street that's not a, not far away, just a sort of three-minute walk from Black, Black Rod Gate, that entrance to, um, to the House of Lords. And the people that were standing on the other side of the barriers just hurling abuse and shouting and i mean you wouldn't have thought that these were people that have just successfully delayed brexit for a fifth time they should have been jubilant and yet the vitriol with which they were attacking that family and those children was really quite horrifying i want to pick up on something you shared yesterday evening i think it was you there was a clip from the european parliament of gentleman whose name Giva Hofstadt I was going to say don't remember and if I did I wouldn't be able to pronounce it uh, and he essentially said I hate that I know how to spell the Hofstadt <laughs> but the number of times I've written about what was then the um, Alliance of Liberals and Democrats in Europe and is now called Renew Europe his, his group in the European Parliament the number of times I've had to write the Hofstadt in the last four years I, I think I've got I couldn't I couldn't say it out loud <laughs> I could type it I could type it for you but it's sort of emblazed in my memory now 
he you shared a clip of him suggesting that it will be the the younger generation in the UK who will eventually bring the UK back into the EU. Before we go on to some more wider term predictions of yours, because I've watched on the BBC, you're you're very good at making accurate predictions. Do you see a time whereby the UK will ever re-enter the EU? No, I don't. And I say that because if you look at the settlement that has been reached in Norway and in Switzerland, these are people happy with their place in the world. Um, And I think the longer we get from the moment of leaving the single market and leaving the customs union, the longer we get from that point and the more established we become in our new role in the world and, and the more people see that all of the scare stories didn't come to be. We didn't become a, a different sort of country. In many ways, we became a more open and global country. I think the, the potency of the issue will melt. And yes, there'll always be a small rump of people who see a future world of empires where you have to be um, a constituent part of a, of a, of a federal superstate a worldview that might have made more sense at the height of the cold war when you had the ussr and the usa and you're thinking hang on let's let's also make this sort of um combined union of states with a single currency and a single flag and a single president um i can see how that's an attractive vision for some in fact if i wasn't a brexiteer i don't think i could be a sort of middle of the road person i think i would be a full-on euro federalist i think those are the two legitimate positions in this debate Number one, because you can't, you can't be a member of the European Union and expect to be an influential member of the European Union if you refuse to use the European Union's currency. The argument, lead not leave, does not make sense unless you adopt the currency and become, um, instead of this sort of anchoring drag on the project, the biggest cheerleader for the project. And, and if Britain were to suddenly say, yes, we want um, the next president of Europe to be a Brit and we will lead the charge for full fiscal union and, and we're going to um, become this, this uh, new counterbalance to the United States and the world and this massive, powerful country of 500 million people. I mean, sure, that's a legitimate political worldview um is it one you'd campaign for i don't think it is i think that britain has always seen itself as less european and more interested in in further flung reaches of the world i think history bears that out i think our our language and our law and our um family connections even are are further afield and i think that there's a reason why the United Kingdom never did join the single currency and why the United Kingdom did want to do all these opt-outs, wanted this two-speed Europe that, frankly, people in the middle of Europe don't want. Um, In many ways, I think we can be happier apart and it's a much bigger prospect as the European Union sort of trundles on this road to ever closer union, to a deeper um, political relationship eventually becoming that um, that mirror image of the United States of America. I mean, we don't really refer to Virginians as Virginians now. We call them Americans in the same way that the, the, the European project in terms of us um, is sort of aiming for us not to call the French the French, but to call them Europeans. Um, now, to subsume national identity in that way is is 
a legitimate political goal. I mean, Californians are still have still got the words California Republic on their flag. They still have their own governor, but they don't have their own currency and they don't have their own foreign policy and and they're and they're part of a of a union and 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 that's fine, but I don't think that that's something that Britain would sit happily with. And I think that the more that Europe pushes itself in that direction, the wiser our decision to leave before it was too late will have seemed. So to bring us back to the beginning of our conversation, just before we finish, your whole professional and political career to date has been about Brexit. We're on the eve of Brexit being over. By the time this episode's published, we will no longer be, uh, well, we're not in the EU, but you know, we'll, we'll either have a deal or there'll be no deal. The whole issue will be, at least for its first chapter, put to bed. I guess this question is twofold. Number one, where does your next big policy issue lie in your mind? And number two, are there any situations bubbling up now, like the in-out referendum was five, six, seven years ago, that you think are going to show their head very soon? The most obvious one is the integrity of the United Kingdom. The most obvious one is defending the union of four countries that do share the same language, share the same queen, share the same foreign policy, and have done remarkably successfully for the last 300 years. That, I think, is an incredibly important battle that particularly conservatives in the United Kingdom haven't woken up to yet. Particularly English conservatives haven't woken up to yet. And there are far too many of them who say, oh, Scotland's a drain on Southeast tax, so why don't we let them go anyway? Well, no. No. They're wrong, and they need to be told that they're wrong. Um, Similarly, there's a battle for the soul of the nation. There's this worrying culture war developing, an unwelcome import from the United States, where people on both extremes of it push ideas that are rejected by the vast majority of people. You've got about 5% of people on either side of this um, of this culture war pushing the most ridiculous um, bouts of, of censorship or nationalism and, and both need to be toned down. So the battle for the soul of the government, i.e. is it going to be a regressive force that might pay lip service to markets but ultimately ultimately is more concerned by culture I would like it to much more focus on how we can enrich everyone by broadening the extent of the market by championing entrepreneurship by making this uh, uh, industrial, financial, business hub of the world. That is what excites me far more than what words are or aren't censored in certain songs. It's clear to me, and probably anybody listening, that you have a very clear vision of uh, not only the political landscape, but how you think the United Kingdom should be. Um. I want to end on a story that I read in David Cameron's book, which will lead to a question. So I am massively paraphrasing the story. 
But there's a story in David Cameron's book which basically speaks about an MP who once got into a taxi in his constituency. And this MP had just been elected for his first uh, parliament. He was talking to the cab driver about politics. And this this taxi driver was uh, saw the, the, the passion that this MP spoke with. And so after that taxi journey... Uh, the, the driver put on a five, sorry, a 500 to one bet that the MP that had just been elected that was in the back of his car was one day going to become prime minister. And that MP turned out to be Tony Blair. And so the cab driver won his bet. He took home £5,000. Now, I've said this to my business partner, Richard, before when we're looking at your tweets. If there's one person I'm aware of who is um, best positioned in our age group to one day take that top job, I believe it's you. Whether or not I agree with everything you say, you tweet. But I guess my question is this. Do you one day have that political ambition? And if so, shall I go and put the bet on? I wouldn't waste your money. Um, (laughs) I want to be able to influence the political direction of this country. I don't think that the most effective way of doing that is always through elected politics. There are however many people who have become however close or or tantalisingly close to um, positions of even power within the cabinet who get it snatched away from them or just are there at the wrong time or perhaps they reach their moment of political maturity at a time when their party happens to be out of power. Um, There are so many different examples of people who who are the best prime minister that never was and all, and all that sort of nonsense and it's a it's an incredibly fascinating rat run and and it's a great race but ultimately if you want to be consistently influential a better model is is looking at the career of someone like William F Buckley Jr in the United States of America who founded a magazine called National Review who arguably did more than anyone other than perhaps Milton Friedman and Ronald Reagan in terms of shifting the discussion um, in the United States. And you know what? He was editor of the National Review and presenter of a television programme called Firing Line for decades. The average political career lasts years, if you're lucky. Um, The influence that Buckley Jr. had beyond was was far beyond any member of the US cabinet, any senator I think that there's a more consistent route and there are more paths to victory through a route that doesn't necessarily involve elected politics Tom, I've learned a lot today thank you very much for your time And I'll let you go off and uh, deal with the 400 notifications you've had on your phone whilst we've been sat here and go and see what's happening in the world of politics. Thank you. Thank you.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.